This is the We the People, Our American Story podcast. My name is Tina McCafferty. Join me every week to hear the remarkable stories of veterans, combat survivors, first responders, and American patriots in their own words. If you are pro-freedom and pro-America, you are in the right place. We the People, Our American Story is the podcast for Americans who fiercely and unapologetically love America. There is no better feeling than knowing your family always has access to clean, safe drinking water. The CyberTech Ring A10 Atmospheric Water Generator is the answer to your peace of mind. The A10 generates clean, fresh drinking water out of humidity, creating up to 10 liters of drinking water each day. The A10 is environmentally friendly with a small footprint, a solar option for remote location, and eliminates bottled water. 36-month financing is available around $70 a month. Visit mywatersource.net. Use code PATRIOT, which in turn will help the We the People, Our American Story podcast reach more patriots. Cheers to clean drinking water and the CyberTech Ring A10 Atmospheric Water Generator. Welcome to another episode of We the People, Our American Story. My guest today is Alec Lace. Alec is the host of the popular podcast, First Class Fatherhood. He speaks with high-profile fathers, including Matthew McConaughey, Trent Johnson, and I I have to mention this because the Seven Little Johnstons are my favorite, so (laughs) I love them. I've watched them from the beginning. Um, People like Sean Ryan and Ron DeSantis, Nick Carter, and these last four, Noah Galloway, Jason Redman, Travis Mills, and Ray Cash Care. And I have to mention those because those four were on my podcast as well. Outstanding gentlemen. So Alec talks with men from all walks of life, including celebrities, politicians, NFL players, Navy SEALs, military, all kinds of fathers. And I am really grateful that he is here today. Excited to hear his journey. Alec, thank you so much for coming on. How are you, Tina? Yeah, and Trent was awesome and, and very, very popular. A lot of the reality TV dads that I do, I, I get tremendous feedback from. So whether it's Trent Johnston or like Matt Roloff from Little People, Big World, uh, John Gosselin from John and Kate Plus 8, like those those episodes, they really resonate a lot with uh, a wide variety of people. And they have like cult-like followings, those reality shows. Uh, but But thank you for having me on the program. You are welcome. I have watched, confession here, I have watched The Seven Little Johnstons and Little People, Big World from the very beginning. I mean, the very first episode. So I have watched their children grow up. It is really fun to watch how their families have progressed and the things that have happened to them. Some good, some not so good. But um, in fact, last night, I caught the little snippet you did when you went to the roll-off farm on the horrible thing that happened to Jacob. Yeah. Yeah. Matt talked about that. He found out about it only uh, a few days before he made the post on Instagram and went public with it. Obviously, that's something that's a concern with all these people that do this kind of stuff. When you're inviting camera crews and all kinds of people around your family, uh, it's bound to happen. You got you got so many, you know, weeds in the grass. It's it's hard to kind of, you know, obviously their screening process got a lot different after that happened. And uh, so it, it was a scary incident. But I've become very good friends with Matt. I actually had him come with me. I stayed at his place in Arizona when I went out to do the Super Bowl this year. 
because uh, the venue wasn't that far from his house. And uh, so I got him a Super Bowl press pass and we went to the event together. And he couldn't go more than five minutes without somebody. Hey, can I get a picture? Can I get an autograph? And uh, he's such a pleasure to be around. He's, he's, he's a great company. Isn't that funny how reality stars have become celebrities? Oh, yeah. That is crazy. I guess it's because we can relate to them. I guess so. I mean, a lot. I mean, when you get into it, a lot of it doesn't is, isn't as much reality, I think, as as we believe, as is made to see when you actually see how it all goes on and goes down. There's a lot more um, a lot more scripting and a lot more like uh, second takes and third takes to get the scene right and uh, storyboarding. And there's a lot more. Uh, not just with that, but with, with that show, but with all of them. I mean, they're they but they do they do a great job because they get great ratings, great reviews, and they have a great following. So they have a, a template that works, and a lot of these people follow through with it. I actually spoke to a TV host who worked on some reality TV series, and he said, "Tina, I hate to break it to you and your listeners, but there's nothing about reality TV that's reality." <laughs> Yeah. And, and the thing is, too, they have to have a villain. And Matt became kind of the villain in yeah. that little people big world. They kind of uh, hammered him. And there's a lot more to that whole story than most people don't know about. And uh, if they did, it would throw a lot of shade on the entire thing. But, um, you know, so there, there has to always be a villain and, and always got to be stories and stuff to go along with the program. Well, let's get started with your story. But before we do, my husband is really good with accents, and he was trying to figure out last night as I was listening to some of your shows exactly what state you're from. He couldn't pinpoint it, but he's saying New England. I'm in the Northeast. I'm born in the Bronx, New York. I grew up uh, in uh, North Jersey, uh, so I guess it's a potpourri of the you know the Northeast uh, accent there. But uh, yeah, so I was born in the Bronx, grew up mostly in uh, North Jersey. Now I'm down here in like Central Jersey, the suburbs, like in uh, raising the family. What was life like for you growing up? Um, I would say fun. I mean, you know, we we grew up on a street that had a lot of neighborhood kids. Uh, we, we all we all played in the street. It seemed like you know. For hours on end, you know, definitely different. It is with my kids right now, the way that, you know, you see so many empty parks and empty ball fields, empty basketball courts. Uh, I don't remember that growing up. Like we always, every, everybody was out, like everybody was always out playing. And so uh, we had a lot of fun. You know, we, we played a lot of ball. We, we got into some mischief and stuff like that. But overall, you know, we, we, you know, we started working at a young age. We developed that work ethic. Um we got into trouble, but we were always polite and stuff like that. But I mean, we, you know, overall, you know, we, we were okay. How many siblings do you have? I have three brothers and three sisters in a blended marriage and a blended family. Um, I have one of my brothers passed away last year. I'm sorry. Um, so I have two brothers left and uh, three sisters. Um, my, my parents both passed away before I became a dad myself. Uh, so I passed away when I was in my early 20s. Uh, but, um, you know, my one brother is really is like the only real close family member that my kids have. Uh, and he's been great to them. And we kind of grew up, you know, really tight together because, like I said, it was a blended family. So me and him were the last two. Uh, so we grew up together. I'm the youngest out of seven. I assume then your parents divorced. And if so, was that at an early age? And what effect did that have on you? No, they, they were in separate marriages before they got together and had me. Gotcha. So it was the, the they, my father was divorced. And so uh, then they met and then they had my one brother and me. So uh, that's the way that kind of worked out. So I was actually an uncle the day I was born. 
uh, because I had uh, my brother was having a kid. He had a kid like a month before my father had me. So it was kind of a weird dynamic growing up. I was, you know, then I became an uncle again at like one years old and then seven years old. And so uh, it was interesting. Who were your role models as fathers growing up? Yeah, I looked up to my my father was a street hustler. He was a used car salesman in the Bronx his whole life. And I, you know, there was a dynamic to that that really I I loved. I really enjoyed that hustle, that mindset. And I kind of got into that at a very early age. Um, Another part of it was, you know, there's a long line of alcoholism in my family. And I kind of fell into that very early on in my life as well. And I I couldn't wait to really get into it, drinking, smoking, gambling, the whole bit and uh, and hustling. And so I kind of got wrapped up into the wrong uh, mindset early on in my life, Uh, you know, from early teen to my early 20s was a really uh, disaster as far as. Uh, you know, I was a mechanic working in the Bronx and just, you know, screwing people over and uh, took on like I was living, a you know, a, a highly, um, uh, I would say, immoral life for quite a long time there. And, uh, you know, it starts to weigh on your conscious a little bit. And, uh, you know, I knew changes were going to have to take place because my life was going in the wrong direction uh, very quickly. But like I said, I, I kind of grew up idolizing that that lifestyle that my father was doing the people that were around it, uh, it was nobody else's fault, but my own, I, I, I wanted to get into it. Uh, so that's kind of really, um, you know, what led me down into, into that path. How did your parents pass away? My father, uh, well, my mother died first of a heart attack. Um, and then my dad passed away four months later of cirrhosis of the liver. And so, and then my brother passed from cirrhosis last year. So like I said, alcohol has been a problem. I'm, I'm sober five years now uh, from alcohol, drugs, gambling, the whole, the whole shooting match. Uh, but yeah, so that, that's, um, that's been a plague in the family for sure. Did the alcoholism come into your life before they passed or after was any of oh, it way, way before okay. yeah way before yeah i i mean i was i would say by high school i was addicted to alcohol already you know on, on a regular basis yeah where did you get the alcohol from you just get it off the street or well it, it's, it was fairly easy i would imagine it's still easy today to get it for underage kids i worry about it with my own kids but it was very fairly easy to get it plus when you live with two people that drink every day it's always in the house so it's not that hard you know sometimes too you can you know you'll drink bottles that have been laying around for a while you'll cut them with water to fill them back up so they look like they're not you know you, you find little tricks and ways you know along along the process but yeah i was i, I worked at a gas station when I was 15 years old pumping gas. So it was very easy for me to have people to get the alcohol from. So, and same thing with weed, cigarettes and the whole bit. I mean, it was all, all those things were always very easy to, uh, you know, to come by. How many years did you drink? Um, I don't know. I, I guess, you know, I would stay on a regular basis from the time I was, you know, I would say by 15 wow. till uh, five years ago. So I'm 42 now. So I guess was at 37. I can't so even imagine that, Alec. I have a 15 year old, and I, my youngest, and you were a baby. Yeah. Yep. Were you drinking to get drunk then? No, you know I never really did that, Tina. To be honest with you, I just drank all day. Like it's just that every point of the day I was drinking. So I mean, I had a. It, it was. It wasn't anything that I ever thought of. I always. 
I mean, I, I was the person that would wake up and do a, have a shot of vodka like it was a normal thing to do. You know, that was a normal process for me. So and I would keep that going all day long, you know. So by the time, like if I would go out with my friends when I was 18, by the time we got to the bar, I had drank more during the day than they were going to drink that night at the bar, you know. And that's when we were just getting started. So I de- obviously you develop a tolerance for it. And the, mo- the more you keep doing it, the, the worse it gets. And through all of this, did you have goals of what you wanted to accomplish? And were you able to do that, though the liquor was there with you? Yeah, I I was never, uh, it never prevented me. I was always very ambitious. So I always had a million things going on that I was doing. Uh, Some of them, you know, not right. And some of them, you know, good. But I always, you know, I was working as a regular auto mechanic. Like I said, in the Bronx, I was always driving a cab at night. Uh, you know, always had side hustles going on. So I was always, always working, always active. You know, I, I was living in a studio apartment when I was 17. So, um, I had, um, I had, you know, my main job was as a, as a mechanic and, and then my side job was as a, a cab driver and I was doing pretty well for myself because it was, uh, providing me a decent living and it gave me a lot of money to, to gamble and party and do all those things. At 17, you were living in a studio apartment. Had you graduated from high school? Yes. Yep. Graduated high school. And then that September uh, or November, by that November, I, uh, I, I moved into a studio apartment. You grew up fast. I guess so. Uh, you know, I was uh, I wanted to move quick. Like, you know, I just uh, couldn't really kind of sit still. Always had like a very like a hunger to just kind of like get out and move. Like, I guess, you know, so. Uh, I did move pretty quickly on a lot of stuff, made a lot of mistakes, failed a ton of times in in my life. And I think it benefited me a lot now that I did fail so quickly early on in life, made a ton of mistakes and paid dearly for a lot of them. Um, you know, I had my first, I got a DWI when I was 19 years old. I got a lifetime ban from giant stadium when I was 20. Can Uh, I ask what you did? Yeah, well, I was it was a Monday night football game and it was, uh, it, you know, it was the day where we were at the, at, at you know, the, at the football stadium from like 12 o'clock in the afternoon drinking all day. And the game didn't even start till eight o'clock. So we were pretty schlitzed by the time the kickoff happened. So, you know, I had gotten into a fight in the stadium. I, uh, ended up down where they have like their medical center. They have like an emergency room. This is in the old giant stadium. And the nurse had, uh, now I, I was blacked out at this point, you know, cause I went down to get two more beers at halftime. And the next thing I knew it was six 30 in the morning and it, I was in Hackensack hospital handcuffed to the bed. So I didn't know really what happened. I had to kind of go through the whole police report and the whole thing to find out. But eventually what it came down to was a nurse had come to take my um, blood pressure and I kind of pushed her off of me, said, don't don't touch me or whatever. And the security guard came over and then I I, I, I took a swing at him. And uh, so I ended up, you know, being under arrest. And, uh, you know, they give you a lifetime ban so that if you ever get in trouble at the stadium again, you're trespassing. So it's not like they check everybody that walks in. Right. But it was that's part of the story is that, I, you know, I had gotten a lifetime ban from Giant Stadium. And then fast forward. I'm invited by the NFL to take part in Super Bowl Media Day, and I get to interview Tom Brady, Patrick Mahomes, and all these players. So it's that, that's the kind of turnaround this whole thing has been. Did you try to quit drinking more than once? or Several just- times. Yeah, several times. There's, there's definitely points where I went like uh, a period of time where I would stop drinking, uh, but then I would pick up. On, on the weed aspect of it to fulfill that gap. And, uh, you know, 
I got involved with oxys as well. Mm. And that that kind of took me for a long ride. And that was very difficult, too. Uh, so I, I, I had got myself pretty, pretty wrapped up in all the addictions. Uh, and they're very, very hard to overcome. Well, I know then you were a taxi cab driver, you said, and that you also, I don't know if you still do it, Uber drive on the weekends. Yeah, I, I did. I've done like 21, 22,000 rides for Uber and Lyft. I've always done, like I said, I did a regular metered cab uh, years ago before Uber came into the picture. And then once Uber came in, uh, I uh, started doing the Uber and always did it Friday, Saturday nights. Uh, I've always found it to be a really good hustle, you know, especially down where I am now, where you have access to the Jersey Shore. Uh, it's always very busy. So, and you know, I, I work nights anyway, so it's it's my normal time to drive. So the, the, I've always done that as a uh, as a side hustle. You could probably start a whole new podcast on the stories that you hear as an Uber driver. Yeah, it gets it gets very interesting. There's no doubt about that. Yeah, I'm sure there's plenty of Uber drivers out there that that have crazy stories because it is it's an adventure when you do it. I mean, that's part of the fun of it, you know, so. Here's a question. Did you ever drive when you shouldn't have? Yeah, all the time. Yes, definitely. Yeah. And thinking back on that now, does that petrify you of what could have happened? Of course. Of course it does. You know, but you don't think about it when you're in it. You know, when you're in it, you, you always think you're okay. You know, you always think, you know, nothing will happen to you and you're, you, you know, you're all right. You have a different mindset. You, when you, when you, and anybody that's an addict knows that. I mean, you you have a different mindset when you're in it. I mean, it, it's it, it's that first before everything else. And it's constantly, where's the next drink? When's the next pill? When's the next smoke? I mean, you, you're always thinking about that. It consumes your life. So everything is done kind of like surrounding that. It's 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 a terrible way to live, to be honest with you. When you get out of it and look back, it's like, geez, it's that's the whole idea of like, having a drink and doing it it's not just having a drink it's it's a whole lifestyle that you got to commit to like and keep up with it's it's um it, it it takes a toll on so many different aspects of your life what a miracle that you are alive today you have to know that right yeah i'm very blessed very blessed to be here i i i've um i i've been lucky and i've been blessed in a lot of different ways yeah what was it for you that you finally said, this is it. I'm done. It's not going to happen anymore. I have got to end this. Yeah. You know, I, I don't have, I didn't have a, um, a hit rock bottom type of moment, but it's, uh, you know, becoming a father really kind of put me on the path to saying like, I, I knew that I had to stop. I mean, I, I've known that I had to stop for a long time, like many people do, but I, I knew that I had a problem. I wasn't in denial. I didn't think that it was something I had in control. I knew it was in control of me. Uh, but I just, um, you know, I kind of had a moment where I really changed my my philosophy around my mindset of wanting to stop living the life that I was living. I guess you say sick and tired of being sick and tired and just wanted to make a change. And I and I made several changes in my life that, um, you know, put me in a put me in a better path. I started reading a lot. Uh, like I started reading different books like Thinking Grow Rich and uh, As a Man Thinketh and uh, started listening to different types of philosophy that kind of really helped you know me realize that I had control over what was happening and that I could change it if I chose to. And so I chose to change it. And I did. And, uh, you know, it's obviously been a, the best thing that's ever happened to me is living sober. I could never um, never imagine uh, going back and living that lifestyle again. 
you said you wanted to be a better father. And I find that interesting because Noah Galloway, we really got into that when he was on my episode where he talks about, he came home. I think it was Christmas Eve. He was out with some buddies, was out drinking and came home plastered. And his first thought as he walked through the door is, I don't want my kids to see me like this on Christmas Eve. And he tried many times to get sober, ended up in jail. And it was, it was a long struggle for him. It's not an easy thing to overcome. It's not. I mean, it's uh, the cemeteries are full of people that couldn't do it, you know, and uh, and so are the streets. It, it's it's addiction is, you know, and one of the things that's crazy is how uh, whenever you would see a tobacco commercial, it's always the guy with the and I wanted to get, you know, they always show you the disasters that happen. But when you see an alcohol commercial, it's always in a great light. You always see it as if this is a, a great thing. It's, uh, you know, women spiking volleyballs. It's guys sitting down in a luxury chair. And it's always it's always a great looking scene. Every sports event sponsored by Budweiser or Bud Light or whatever it is. And, and we look at it as if it's such a good thing. And I, I really think there should be a push somewhere where you can't advertise anymore. They should have be under the same restriction as tobacco. They shouldn't be able to do it. The only commercials we should see about alcohol are the ones where it's ruined people's lives. I mean, you're talking about like a hundred over a hundred thousand people a year are dying in this country from excess alcohol abuse. So uh, there's a big, we have a major problem with it, but it, when it comes down to it, it's yourself. And, and the problem is trying to stop for other people never worked. So I couldn't stop for my kids. I couldn't stop for my wife. I had to stop because it's what I wanted to do. And until that happens, uh, I was just, you know, fighting against the wind. I believe it is a testament to America and the American dream that you started where you did and look where you are now speaking to these men that I'm sure five years ago, you wouldn't even be able to comprehend that. So let's talk about how you got to where you are today. What was your career? I still am. I, uh, I'm a railroad mechanic. So I've been doing that for 23 years now. Uh, a mechanic on the diesel engine locomotives. And that's been my main time, my bread and butter job for the family. And, and obviously, you know, a lot of side jobs along the way, but it, this all started and again, five years ago, getting sober. I had this kind of shift in, in my mentality that I wanted to kind of stop doing uh, some of the, I would say, you know, uh, nef nefarious or illegal things that I was doing and wanted to try to start doing things in a more positive way, try to make positive changes in my life. And so one of those things was uh, I had written down was starting a podcast. I had that. Why? I had. Uh, Why did you want to well, start a podcast? Because I was looking for things to do. I, I dropped three things that were negative in my life and I wanted to pick up three things that were positive. Now, the three things I dropped that were negative were all making money for me, uh, but not legitimate money. It was I wanted to stop doing them and start doing positive things. So I started to train Brazilian Jiu Jitsu. I started taking real estate uh, classes and I started a podcast. So those are the three things that I had picked up. And I didn't know what to do as a podcast. I just wanted to just try it. I had seen that it existed. I didn't know what it was. I had no idea what a podcast was when I heard about it. But when I seen it, I said, oh, maybe I'll put something, you know, give me occupy, give me something to do. And I wrote down a list of things to do it on. So, it, you know, and everything that I was reading, I went to the library, took out a book on how to start a podcast. And it was saying to do things that you're very familiar with, uh, you know, not to do something that, you know, you're unfamiliar with. So I wrote down a whole list of things to possibly do it on. 
And uh, driving Uber, I had always had this kind of message because I hear from so many of the young men that when I would tell them I have four kids, they always thought that was some kind of crazy notion that, that, you know, to have four kids, like they always looked at me like I had four heads, you know, and I would always try to tell them, Hey, listen, it's, it's, it's not what you think. Like starting a family, having kids is really going to change your life. I always kind of try to pump this positive message into these young guys. And so I had that in mind when I was trying to come up with an idea for the show. And so that's why I chose to do it on fatherhood. So the the podcast, sorry, I, I really enjoyed it. I got good feedback. I think the first episode I did had like 17 listeners. You know, I was like, well, this is interesting. And I just, I, I had fun doing it because it gave me a chance to talk about things that were really important to me. And so soon, little by little, I had gotten into a car accident and that wiped out my Brazilian jiu-jitsu training because I screwed my back up. And I was was paying more attention to the podcast than I was the real estate school. So at a certain point, I just dropped the real estate school and focused all in on the podcast. And, and I've been doing it ever since. Who was your first big father? Uh, D- Dean Kane. And I just had him on again for he came on episode 47. So it was 47 episodes in when Dean Kane. Came I on saw the show. that. Yeah. And he just came back for episode 700. Uh, so he, he was on episode 47, he promoted the show on his social media and that weekend it hit number one on iTunes for kids and family. And when it was not, while it was number one, I really went hard to try to get other guests because they could see that the, that the show was number one. And I was able to get Deion Sanders and Kurt Warner and Rob O'Neill. And I, I, I grabbed a, quite a few good guests right there, capitalizing on that. And then from there, it, it's, it, it's been all downhill. Well, how are you getting all of these big guests? Are you emailing them yourselves? How is it working? The same way you got me. It's the same thing. I mean, uh, there's no other way to do it. It's 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 so um, everybody is accessible now. It's not that hard to to get a hold of people. So if you if you uh, if you seek, you will find. Right? If you ask, you shall receive. So just seek, search, and you'll find. Do you have a catch in your email that you think has helped you? I think, you know, obviously I target if I'm targeting a Navy SEAL, I'll mention other Navy SEALs that I've had on the show. So uh, that makes it easier if you're going to ask a SEAL and tell him, hey, I've had Jocko Willink and Marcus Luttrell. That kind of gives you a little bit more street credit there. So as I've built the audience, you use, you know, if if I'm trying to pitch a politician uh, and I tell him I've had Ron DeSantis and Ted Cruz on the show, that helps. You know, so I'll, I'll, I'll tailor the pitch to whoever it is that I'm trying to, I don't have just like a copy and paste. I have right. certain, certain uh, ways to try to get certain guests, obviously, but it's, it's just reaching out. So how do you get someone like Matthew McConaughey on? You just ask, Who I mean, you it's ask? really, about, you ask a publicist or you, you ask his agent or, you, you know, you, you hit him on Instagram or you, you hit him on Twitter. I mean, there's so many different ways you try them all at the same time, you know, it make it a, make it the whole blitz package. Like, you know, you just every single contact you can find hit it, you know, and, and, and stay persistent. If you don't hear back, follow up. I like that. That helps me out a lot because there are some great people that I see that you have had that I'm like, oh my gosh, I know that they're really patriotic. I need to get them on my podcast. So that's great. And what about the astronauts? Because I've tried with astronauts and that's a whole thing. Yeah, I got thing. them through NASA. Yeah, I got yeah, them through NASA. That's a whole thing. You have to jump through some hoops with them. Same thing with the State Department when I had Mike Pompeo on when he was the Secretary of State. You know, I've had him on again since then. Uh, and it was a lot easier, but you know, when he was with the state department, that was, that was, you know, there was like three people listening on that call. 
but they did a great job. I mean, they published the whole, you know, they transcribed that interview and put it on the state department website. I mean, it was, it was pretty cool. How do you decide who you want on? You know, I, I don't know. Sometimes I just kind of, uh, I don't want to say like, I'll just meditate about it or think about it or pray about it. And then, uh, you know, search who's got what's coming up, what movies are coming out, what books are coming up. Uh, who's got something they're promoting, a music album. I and mean, obviously when people are in that promotional mode, they're more likely to um, to be doing podcasts. You know, you check to see who's doing the rounds. I mean, some people are doing all the podcasts. Like Matthew McConaughey, when I got him, he was he must have done 100 different podcasts. So, I mean, if you threw your name in the hat, you had a chance because he was doing them. You know, he was actively doing press for his book, uh, uh, Green Lights. So if, if if you tried during that time, you had a very good chance of getting them because he did so many of them, you know, and, and, and that's what you try to look for when guys are in that promotional mode. You have had some fabulous, outstanding fathers on your podcast. Can you pick out a few who have really made an impression on you? I know it's you don't want to, to huh? <laughs> you know, you know, there's 700 that I've had on the show, so it's hard to um, isolate them. But they've all they all bring something different to the table. Every one of us has a different experience, even though we're all fathers. So it's always interesting to hear um, how they parent their kids, how they discipline their kids, their approach to uh, when their kids start dating or start driving or start, you know, getting involved in drugs and alcohol or uh, all these aspects. They, you know, every one of these dads has had something. I mean, even the ones that I don't. Um, uh, agree with uh, either politically or ideologically or re religiously. I'm always fascinated by it. You know, I've had plenty of uh, Muslim dads on the podcast, Jewish dads on the podcast, Christian dads on the podcast, gay dads on the show, uh, Republicans, Democrats. I enjoy talking to them all because, we, we, you know, just like they used to tell us during COVID, we're all in this together, you know, uh, but we're all dads. At the end of the day, we're, we're trying to be, you know, ripped apart by, the media and all whatever it is, the powers that be that try to tell us we should hate one another um, are lying to us. Because when you actually sit down and talk to people, you find out that we're so much more alike than we are different. OK, well, how about this? Were there any that you were more nervous than some of the others? I don't think so. I don't think I, I like I mentioned Mike Pompeo. I was kind of nervous doing that because I didn't know what to expect because he was kind of talking to I don't know who I was talking to. Like it was a, oh, that was a little bit. But I mean, I not nervous as far as talking to him himself. I was excited to talk to him. Uh, but I, I can't say that I was really nervous about it. Um, I just more just more grateful. What is the purpose of your podcast? What do you want people to get out of it? Well, number one, Tina, we, we you know, we have a, a fatherless crisis going on in this country. And in my opinion, it's the number one social issue that we have going on. We have all these kids growing up without a father, without a father figure, and it's destroying our our country. And so the whole idea here is to try to change the narrative, especially with the young about to be dads, the new dads, give them an opportunity to listen to these guys that have accomplished so much in their life that they're known for you know, Academy Award winners or Super Bowl MVPs, whatever they've accomplished has been what we would think, oh my God, that would be the greatest thing in the world if I could do that. And you can hear the guy that did do it and he tells you the greatest thing that's ever happened to me has been becoming a father. And I think that carries a lot of weight. And these guys are influencers. We see how valuable influencers are today. Uh, we see political campaigns paying influencers on TikTok 
to help them with their campaigns to get through to the younger audiences because they have influence. These guys that I've interviewed have a ton of influence, ton of following, and they need to be known for being fathers. They need to be known for being family men because it's so much more important. Uh, they're, they're, what they, who they are as fathers is far more important than who they are on the football field, who they are on the big screen, who they are even as politicians. So I just want to give an opportunity for a lot of young men, a lot of guys to have a chance to listen to these guys talk about what's when, it, when it's all said and done, when all the smoke clears, the only thing these guys really care about is their children. Why do you think fathers are so undervalued here in America? Because I'm with you, Alec. I can see it. And how some people can't connect the dots to why there's so much crime, why there is so much drug and alcohol use is because the fathers aren't in the home and fathers can provide some things that mothers can't. And I don't think there's anything wrong with that. I am grateful that my husband is in the home, that he is a great father to our children. They need that. And it also comes down to the fact, even like, I remember when my son was little and they would wrestle together, you know, and Boys need that. Boys need those kind of things. But why are fathers so undervalued? And why do so many Americans not get it that that is a huge problem in America? Well, first of all, Tina, I mean, this didn't this didn't start last week. This has happened many years ago. This this happened in the 60s during the civil rights movement uh, with Lyndon B. Johnson and the Great Society, where you had um, you had the welfare come in and you had so many women that were benefited from not having a man yeah, in the home financially you know, right and, and so that gave that incentive uh to not have the man in the home and then, then you had the whole feminism movement which was aimed at uh destroying the nuclear family uh, i am a woman i don't need a man in my life uh, so we went through that at the same period through that 60s and 70s we saw that all happen uh men obviously became they're emasculated in this country right now and they're afraid to be a man it's almost as if, um, you know, they fear being a man at this point. They'd rather they'd rather just hide in the shadows because of the way they've been pummeled uh, by society here. But you, you also have the family court system in this country, Tina, that is uh, corrupted. And it is a it is the one of the number one factors right now leading to so many kids not having the father in their life because they, they will fight for their kids. Now, you have dads that will fight no matter what. And we need more of those guys. But you have dads that are just financially strapped, humiliated. They've tried for years and years and they get nowhere. And they are devastated. And and, and the kids grow up without their father in their life. And, and, and if they do get their father. They get a, you know, a one quarter uh, of who he was as a man before that happened. The courts do a terrible job in this country and it's a big moneymaker for the government. Uh, So it's a multi-billion dollar industry. And that's a big part of the problem, too. But also to the prison systems, you're, you're sentencing men to longer sentences than you do women. They don't consider the fact that the guy has kids when they sentence him to a crime. And uh, when you do that, you're sentencing the kids as well. And, and it's the, uh, that's what happens. So many kids grow up without a dad and they repeat the cycle. Their dad left. It justifies it in their head. So I'll leave, too. I don't have to be around. My dad wasn't there for me. What's the difference? And it's justified. Uh, and they have a built in excuse to fail when they grow up without a father. So it's those kids that grow up. And I've had a lot of them on a the show who grow up without a father, who break that cycle, who break that chain. And they are there and they are present because they know that. Uh, what it did to their life and they won't let it happen to their kids. And that's really what's going to make the change going forward is we need more guys like that. 
I find it really interesting, and I don't know if you've noticed this too, I'm guessing you probably have, that a lot of the men in the military, and especially the Navy SEALs, it seems, they had very troublesome childhoods without a father. Yeah, Ray Care is one of them. Uh, you know, but, but a lot of them, yeah, a lot of the SEALs, the, the, the community, they come in there and, and they grew up without a father, but they find it in the military. They find it through a, 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 a leader in the military. And then and, and without, without that, I mean, could you imagine if some of these guys like a Ray Care never found that leadership and, and just found it in the street? I mean, the damage he would have done uh, and so many of them. Uh, and that's what's happening. That's what's happening all throughout our country right now. I mean, if you find a city that's loaded with this violent crime, you're going to find a city that's loaded with fatherless kids. I mean, they're, they're the, it's the number one thing in common with people in prison. It's the number one common thing. 85% of the youths in prison are all fatherless kids. You, you could talk to the wardens. You could talk to the prisoners themselves. That's the number one issue. And Barack Obama spoke about this in 2008 before he got uh, became president. He had won the nomination already. And it was Father's Day 2008. He gave a phenomenal Father's Day speech where he called out the African-American fathers. And he said, you know, we have this problem everywhere in our society, but nowhere is it greater than in the African-American community. And we need these guys to step up. You're killing our country, you know, or you're killing our culture. And he called him out on it. And he got attacked by his own party right after that speech. And he never spoke about it again. And two things happened after that. He never spoke about the fatherless crisis again. And the African-American fatherless crisis got worse. And so he could have done so much uh, to help change that. But they would have let that happen because there's a lot of money involved in the fatherless crisis in this country. And and it's been done by design. It's not an accident that there's no dads in the homes. We lead the world in fatherless households. You know, Pew Research did that back in 2019 or 20. We, We lead the world in fatherless households. And that's that's not by accident. You know, that that's all by design. It's definitely by design in the African-American community, where in the 1950s, you know, they had a they had a 13 percent uh, fatherless rate. You know, they, they had they, they had some of the most intact family units in the country. And now, you know, 70 percent are born out of wedlock and, and, and it all happened on purpose. It's tragic. And you're definitely preaching to the choir here. What would you want to tell fathers who want a better relationship with their children who are struggling for one reason or another to do that, whether they're in the home full-time or divorced, some strained relationships, what advice would you give them? You have to try to find a guy that's in your situation that's had success. I mean, that's the best thing that you can do. Find a guy that has, and I, I always do it. Like even when I had uh, Tony Hawk on the show, he'd come on a couple of times. He's a dad of six kids in a blended relationship uh, with uh, you know kids from different moms and he married a girl with other kids. And so they have a blended family and they make it work. And I always ask him, what advice do you have? You know, and so he gives advice on it. You have to try to find somebody that has a similar situation to you that has had some success and that success will leave clues. Maybe they wrote a book, you know, maybe they they, they did a video, follow them on social media uh, and, and pick up some some of what they're doing and, and try different things. You know, you got to stay with it. But if you're already asking that question, you're already in the right area. You're already ahead of 90 percent of the, the curve of the deadbeat dads that we have in the country. So just by searching and and, that, and again, back to that, you know, is search and you'll find you got to search for the answers and you'll find them. Going through your podcast, you are a prolific podcaster. (laughs) How are you releasing 
so many episodes so quickly because for those who don't know, there is a lot of legwork behind the scenes. How are you releasing those so quickly? Well, I think you would know too, Tina, once you do it for a while, you get it down, you know, uh, in the beginning, it took a long time to do them. Uh, I spent way more time than I should have, but I was very caught up in it in the beginning. Uh, and now I have it down pretty much to a science uh, and it's not that difficult. So I, I'm only doing right now three episodes a week. I was doing five for quite a long time, uh, but now I'm doing three. I'll probably tone that down to one as we get closer to the summer. Uh, but usually I'm doing three episodes a week and it's, you know, I, I have, I'm, I'm, my schedule works for me. I make my schedule work for me. I work for the railroad at night from seven at night to three in the morning. So I'm able to eat dinner with my family at six o'clock. I cook dinner every night. We sit down as a family, we eat together, we pray together. And then I go to work. I come home at three 30 in the morning and everybody's asleep. So I have the opportunity there to do a lot of my editing and a lot of different stuff or write questions or email guests or whatever I have to do. And then I, you know, I'll sleep from five in the morning till 10 in the morning. When I wake up at 10 in the morning, my wife is at work at the church and the kids are at school. So from 10 in the morning until they get out at two 30, three o'clock, I do all of my podcast stuff in between that time period. And then if I'm interviewing guests or if I'm whatever it is to do a podcast, once that time comes, that's over. And then it just becomes kids after school activities homework, dinner, and then back to the routine. Well, you're making me feel really lazy. Aren't you exhausted? No, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's just, um, I just inspired by it. Like I I'm very, um, you know, I think you could look at it like two different ways of like either anticipation or apprehension of tomorrow. And I always anticipate tomorrow. I'm always in anticipation of what's coming next. Who's going to email me? Who, what guest am I going to get? the stuff with the kids, like always looking forward to what's going on tomorrow with them. And always, there's so much to be grateful for and thankful for that. It's, it's hard to get, um, tired, you know? So, uh, I I'm just, you know, very, very grateful for so much of what I have. And, and what, you know, especially too, when you get emails from dads all over the country, some from all over the world, uh, where the show is making an impact and it's, it, it's, it, it really helps keep you going and motivates you. Well, Alec, you must not need as much sleep as I do, because if I had five hours of sleep every night, I would be a zombie. <laughs> You're lucky that way. Let's talk a little bit about your family, can we? How many years have you been married? 18. Your wife then saw some dark times for you. Definitely. That says oh, a yeah. lot about her character to stay with you through all of that. Can you share a little bit about your wife and what she means to you, what she's done for you? Yeah, my, my wife's my biggest um, uh, supporter. My wife's my biggest fan. My wife's my best friend. Uh, my wife is, you know, we, we have got a great relationship. We've had, obviously, uh, very difficult times throughout our marriage. Uh, we've, I would say at this point, you know, we're probably at the best place we've ever been in our marriage, you know, 18 years into this with four kids. And, uh, you know, obviously she's seen me at my darkest moments and, uh, it, it's, uh, it's a struggle at times and we, you know, we were able to, you know, work through it and, um, you know, it's been a blessing to me. It's been a blessing to me. It's been a blessing to kids. And, uh, we, we've, um, I, I'm very, very blessed to have her. I mean, uh, you know, uh, I, I met her, I was, um, sitting on my stoop. 
outside my apartment building and she walked around the corner and I thought she was waiting for her tires to get fixed across the street. And we started talking and we've been together ever since, you know, that, 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 um, December we got, that was in a September, that December we got engaged, uh, that February we got married out in Las Vegas. And then the following year we started having kids. So, uh, we met and we got engaged and we got married very quickly. And it's been a marriage that's endured so far 18 years. Well, you can handle anything now then. We feel that way, but we know, you know, you know, we got a long way to go too here, Tina. I mean, our oldest is 17. Uh, well, he's going to be 17 next week. And so I've never had a 17 year old. So it's hard. New horizons for us. <laughs> we, so, we think when they're little, it's hard, but man, when they become teenagers, it just throws a whole new wrench into it. <laughs> And again, I look forward to it with great. I look forward to it with great anticipation. I'm I'm not apprehensive about, you know, seeing the next stage or what's coming this way. I mean, I I can think back to being 17 myself, and uh, and a lot of the trouble and a lot of the mistakes, and hopefully that some of that stuff I can use to help guide my kids. But I, I, I you know, unfortunately, I understand that they're going to have to make their own mistakes and they're going to have to learn from them. And uh, and what is a little mind boggling is it doesn't seem like they're making those mistakes as quickly as I did. And that kind of makes me um, not want them to fail, but just want them to take more risks, more chances, take, you know, just, just because I think the failing process in life is so crucial uh, to, to figuring a lot of this stuff out. And the faster you do it, the, the quicker you learn and the more, the quicker you grow up and, and uh, you don't have to make that mistake again. Well, a couple of questions. You mentioned you have four children. I know the youngest is your princess. My two questions are, do you discipline her differently? Are you wrapped around her little finger? And the um, next question is, how much do you tell your kids about the problems that you've had in the past, such as your alcoholism? How do you know how much to tell them? And when do you tell them? Well, as far as the first question, yes, I, I discipline her way differently than I do my three boys. And whether that's right or wrong, I don't really care. I, I just I can't discipline her the same way. So I'm not able to to do it. Uh, my wife is definitely more of a disciplinarian with her. Uh, I love her to death. She's my only girl. Uh, like I said, I, I lost my mother before I had kids. Um, so I'm grateful that I have my wife and my daughter in my life. They're the two, you know, two most important women in the world to me. And I, you know, so it, it, it's definitely different, um, but it's good that she has three older brothers. It toughens her up and my wife definitely keeps her in check. So she's got some balance to it. So I'm allowed to take the role of uh, of the spoiler. Doting dad. Yeah, th there's no doubt about it. Uh, but as far as letting them know, they, they all are aware that I'm a recovering alcoholic. Uh, they don't really remember uh, me as the as a drunkard or as, as a drinker. Uh, my oldest one. Uh, can recall some, but not to the degree where, you know, it, it's very vivid, but uh, I'm very upfront with them about it. And I, and I try to explain to them as best as I can about the dangers of drugs and alcohol. Uh, I would hope that they can, you know, I, I would hope that they would learn from me and my mistakes, but I understand. And I'm going through this right now. with trying to figure out the right way to do this because I don't know if the best way is to allow them to drink uh, in the house here to try it, to see how it is or when we have a family thing, to have a glass of wine or to have a beer. 
Uh, so this way it's in a controlled environment so they can test themselves and see how they react to it. Or is the first time they do it at somebody else's house in their basement where it's in an uncontrolled environment and they're just going to, you know, get whacked and somebody will be able to tell them, Hey, put it down. I don't know. I don't know the right way to do it. Obviously I would, if, if I could do it, they would never have any alcohol or drugs in their life. Uh, I, I don't know that that's realistic, but uh, all I could do is be there and share my experience and hope that they can learn from it. That's really the best I can do. And, and, and living by the example, they never see me drink. They never, they'd never seen me um, smoke cigarettes. They never seen me get high. Uh, so I'm hoping that that example will be something where I, you know, I grew up seeing that and uh, idolizing it with my father, my mother, my older brothers, my sisters, and I couldn't wait to do it. Now I had my, my one brother that was the closest with me growing up. He's 15 months older than me that grew up in the same environment, he's completely different than me. He was the one that never, because he saw all the, the, the devastation, decided never to touch it in his life. And he's better for it. I went the other way. I couldn't wait. I, I couldn't wait to get into it. Like, you know, so, I mean, uh, I think by removing that, uh, it lessens the uh, the chance of, of them picking it up. But it's definitely something that concerns me. For, and, and it's something we talk about quite a bit. Let's switch to the state of the country right now. Have you ever heard of the National Covenant? No. Okay. Have you, I, I didn't get a chance to look through all of your episodes. Have you had Tim Ballard on? Tim Ballard? No. With, I w- yeah. He's the child rescue guy. Yes. Or, uh, yes. yes yeah, from I, you know, Operation Underground Railroad. With, I was scheduled with him last year and we didn't work it out. Yeah. No, I didn't have him on. Okay. Well, let me give you a little bit of background. I've been reading several of his books because he's an author as well. And he's very big on the National Covenant. And I want your take on this. Basically, what the National Covenant is, if you go back to the founding fathers and you look at where they got a lot of their visions for this America experiment, you might find some philosophers, John Locke, people like that. But research has shown that most of the ideas that they came up with was found in the Old Testament in the book of Deuteronomy. And I would encourage you to go and read Deuteronomy because once you do with this mindset, you will be blown away. And what it is, if you're familiar with the Old Testament and the Israelites, how they had a covenant with God. And it was basically, I will protect you. I will lead you to the promised land. I will keep you safe if you obey me. A covenant with each other, a two-way promise. Tim Ballard in his books talks about how the founding fathers did the same thing. They believed America would stay safe, stay strong if we had the same covenant with God, where we obey him, we live a good life, and in return, he protects us, he protects this special land of America. And I'm trying to hit on that a little bit this season because it's really impacted me. It's amazing the things that he writes about because I see it as we are not really keeping our national covenant. And I'm not talking about so much as maybe you or me, but as America as a whole, if there is such a thing as a national covenant, how do you think we're doing? Because I think God is definitely in the details of this country and People aren't paying attention and they don't care. Well, Tina, one, one thing you have to remember about that story is that the Israelites never got there, never got to the promised land. And primarily because from the beginning, 
they started to complain. Right. They complained about the weather. They complained about the water. They complained about the food. They complained about how hot it was. They complained about everything. And they never got there. And I think that's where we are right now in this country, as far as that goes, is that all we're doing is complaining about everything. Everybody is a victim in our country right now. Everybody it has uh, created a, uh, a circumstance that they seem to be uh, fighting against. And there's a, a lot of that going on. The victimhood mentality in this country uh, is a plague. And I think also, too, you combine that with the fact of the every kid gets a trophy, uh, which has made everybody feel entitled. Uh, I think that's where those issues are as far as um, that biblical sense goes. But I think also, too, obviously, like I mentioned, the fathers have been taken out of the home, but our Heavenly Father has been removed from our society. And those two things have really just crippled our country. And until we get them back, you're not going to see an improvement. There is. Here's what I know. You'll never see this country improve unless the fatherless crisis starts to go away. Agreed. If, if you don't, if you don't strengthen the family units, it'll never get better. It, 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 it cannot. There's no scenario in which that happens. If we don't bring God back into our society, there is no scenario in which this gets better. You got to have those two pieces. If you don't have God and you don't have the family, you don't have the country. There's not one single uh, civilization throughout history that has flourished without the family, even Rome. Rome fell apart for a number of reasons, maybe seven or eight major reasons why they fell apart from the barbarian invasions or the economy, whatever you want to call it. But you can't have the conversation about Rome falling without having the fact that their nuclear families fell apart during that process. Uh, it's it, it's all throughout history. So, you know, we can try to solve all these other problems and all these other issues that we have going on. But unless we solve this problem with the family, none of it is going to matter. I agree with you. It's, I don't want to say it's a simple solution, but it's there in front of our face and we don't talk about it. I think it would help with the mass shootings that we have. It would help with the mental health. It would help with the overall crime. If the machine, if you saw what happened during COVID, you can see how easily they can get the whole narrative to change and people to do whatever they want. You can see how easy it is. So if they turned that machine on and celebrated family with the same intensity that they celebrated fear, you would change the country almost immediately, almost overnight. You could change the whole course of this country. If you turned on every machine that was turned on to get you to wear a mask while you were outside jogging, if you turned that whole thing on and turned it towards family life, being a father, being responsible, going to church or praying to God or, or, or keeping the, the, the values and traditions, you would change the entire country. If all these influencers, all these music industries, if they weren't singing about shooting people and, and dealing drugs and shaking their booty and they were actually giving out good positive messages about love and about hope and about family, you could change everything. Everything could be changed very quickly if there was a propaganda machine that was interested in getting the country in that direction. But there isn't one. The propaganda is in the other way. What's that? Why isn't there? Because the, the people that are in charge of it are benefiting off the chaos that we're seeing in our country. I mean, look at Black Lives Matter. Black Lives Matter. We, now we all know that they were frauds. But in the beginning, people didn't know that. And everybody was donating all this money to them and they were swept up into it. And they really believed in the cause that was actually telling people that we are out front in their second paragraph on their page was we seek to destroy the nuclear family unit. Yeah. And all these people were supporting it blindly. So if you had movements like that, that were pro-family, what a difference it would make. 
Well, we look at America and right now I just feel like we're drowning. Do you have hope for the future? Of course. Yeah. hundred percent. I would think that if we took a time machine and you threw a dart at the calendar and we picked a year and we went to that year and we sat down and talked to people, they would say, oh, there's no hope for this country. I would think that that precipice or that that mindset has been there. I'm sure it was there during the Great Depression. You know, I'm sure it was there uh, during the onset of World War Two. You know, I'm sure that there that if you sat down with families back in any of those times, they would they would say, oh, I, I fear for the future of this country. What my I, I would want to have kids because they're going to I don't know what they're going to grow up into. So this is just our part of it. But there is hope. There's oh, there's always going to be hope for this country. Yeah, I think so as well. We just need to get our priorities straight. <laughs> Hopefully more people are waking up now, I hope. What are your goals for your podcast? What do you see in the next one year, two years, five years? Where would you like it to be? What do you want to accomplish? You know, I, last year I had a, a book come out with HarperCollins, uh, which did very well. The, the podcast is doing really well. Uh, I'm working on a few different deals right now uh, that could be very good for the podcast. We'll see what happens. But for right now, I just enjoy talking to people. I just did an interview with Andrew McCarthy. Oh, yes. Um, so I'll, have, I'll put, yep, I'll put that out in a couple of weeks. And I, I'm, you know, it, it, it's fun to get a chance to do this because it's something that I truly believe in. I get a chance to talk to so many amazing people about a subject that's very dear to my heart. Uh, my kids think I'm like a superstar or a celebrity. My, my daughter actually tried to Google the like, top 50 most popular people. And she's like, I'm going to, she thinks everybody knows me. Like, you know, so, <laughs> uh, and it's funny too. Like if I'm at the shop right with her or something and I see somebody I know and they come up and talk to me and then she'll be like, dad, who was that? I say, they're a fan of the show. You know, they know me from the show, you know? So I keep that going with her, but they're like, Kids think that I'm like a celebrity. They're my biggest fans. They love what I do. They're always shilling the podcast for me uh, wherever they go. Uh, so I, I'm just I'm, I'm enjoying this part of it. And I, and I really try to be present in each moment that I get. Like I'm sitting in my bedroom closet right now. This is where I do all my interviews. And um, so when I'm in here and I'm doing the interviews, I, I'm very present. And I, I really appreciate the opportunity that I have to talk to so many of these people. Would you like this to be your sole source of income at some point? I think we're getting there. Yeah, oh, I, I think that's I, I think we're getting there. And uh, yeah, that, that would be nice. But you know what? I, I would really like it to have as much of an impact as possible, uh, you know, where it's uh, mutually beneficial that I can. Yeah, I'll make it a, a source of income. Uh, but for two, that it's that it maximizes the impact of what we're trying to get out there and, and hopefully makes it a small contribution in getting rid of the fatherless crisis in this country. Where can people find your podcast? Everywhere you find podcasts. If you Google first class fatherhood, it's everywhere. You know, I, I, iTunes and Spotify and YouTube and the whole the whole nine yards. Uh, Firstclassfatherhood.com. You'll find it. So, Alec, I know that you have a last question that you ask at the end of every episode, which is what? What advice do you have for the new or about to be father? And yes, what oh, is your my advice? advice? Well, I, I would say... Uh, 
I would I would call it like uh, for me I would say like the ABC I would say uh, a be adaptable you know uh, you, your kids are not growing up in the same generation that you did everything is different they don't know what a, a, a dial tone is or a uh, you know a rotary phone or a VCR they don't know what these things are you got to be able to adapt movies aren't the same music isn't the same uh, so you have to be willing to adapt as a dad you, you know don't get stuck in back when you were a kid growing up because it's not the same it's completely different they're using different terms they're they're playing different games they're into different stuff so be willing to adapt uh i would say be bend don't break uh be willing to change the rules allow your kids to have an opportunity uh to push back uh, give them the chance give them a say in the matter as long as it doesn't compromise your core values uh, allow them to change the rules uh, once in a while as long as they make a compelling argument give them that chance you know don't be all hammer all the time uh, and see, I would say calm is contagious, right? You hear that from all the military guys that you interview, uh, things are going to get chaotic. Uh, it's going to be time to, to go to the birthday party. You were going to be leaving the house. The kid's going to crap his pants. And now you got to go change the diaper. Like when these things happen in their high pressure moments, try to remain calm because if you can do that, your wife will stay calm. The kids will stay calm. And just remember that it's just a moment that's going to pass. So, uh, you know, I would just say, you know, stay calm in those moments that get chaotic and that'll definitely benefit you and the family as well. Well, like you, Alec, I also have a last question. I know that you're patriotic. I know you are because I've listened to some of your episodes. I know from your guests, the military, that you have a great love for the military and for the, the men and women who protect and serve us. My last question for you is what does America mean to you? I would say opportunity is what it means. I think, you know, obviously we're at a point here in our country where, you know, people just like you said, like, I don't know about, you know, is there hope for this country? But I still think that, you know, obviously it's the last stand on earth where opportunity is. This is why so many people are trying to come here. We, we, we don't hear about the stories of people that risked it all to get to Cambodia. You know, we, we don't hear those stories. We don't hear about the people that are, uh, fighting and dying and starving just so they can make it to Portugal. You know, they're trying to come here. They're, they're all trying to come to this country still. It still has the greatest opportunity for people. Uh, and, and I think that that still exists. I think, look, I mean, look at what I'm doing right now. I'm, you know, I have an opportunity to sit in my closet here and talk to, uh, you know, some of the most famous people on the planet. I mean, where else can you really do that? You know, and uh, so it, 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 the opportunity is here. The freedom is still here. Uh, we just got to hold on to it and we got to appreciate it and we got to fight for it. Alec, thank you for sharing your American story with us. I really appreciate it. Tina, thank you. I appreciate you having me on. Thank you for listening to this episode of Another Fellow Patriot. Be sure to check the show notes for links to this week's guest. For more connection to the podcast, visit www.wethepeopleouramericanstory.com for social media links, patriotic merchandise, and to sign up for the We The People newsletter. And finally, be a voice, a strong voice, a voice for freedom. As Benjamin Franklin so eloquently stated, where liberty dwells, there is my country. 